Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ of the Cure. This episode 146, and we are wrapping up Reformation Month with an episode on justification. It's not part of the Beyond Luther series. I wanted to keep that primarily historical. Um, in fact, I had a good 20-minute section at the end of that episode that I ended up cutting out because I kind of went on a little bit of a rant. Um, and so I cut that out, and I was like, well, I'm going to keep that historical, and then we'll do an episode on justification to wrap up Reformation Month. So before we jump in real quick, I just want to say thank you all. It was actually the podcast's birthday. Um, we've been running this podcast for three years. It flies by, I tell you what. Um, so again, thank you all for your support, and especially to my patrons, which um, I've had a couple of new patrons, and you guys bless me immensely, and I, and I appreciate that, and I hope that the podcast blesses you as much as it blesses me. It's been a real learning point for myself, and um, well... That'll be it. So let's jump right in. Now, organization-wise, I don't really know what happened. You know, I had a, I had like a table of contents on my document, and then I just kind of lost it. No, I just ended up deleting it, rather, because... Well, anyway, so it seemed appropriate to have this episode as continuity with the last episode because we examined the Council of Trent, right? Uh, and I had brief theological commentary there. I tried to avoid it. Um, as best as I could, but of course I really didn't. I had that, like I said, 15-20 minute rant at the end uh, that I just ended up cutting out for the sake of um, removing theological commentary from a historical series. Um, justification is the biggest divider between Protestants and Rome, and you know, questionably Eastern Orthodox. You know, if we're talking about Eastern Orthodox and justification, they're kind of a weird middle ground um, with very little consistency or coherence, really. Um, which you'll find is a wide variety, not anything nailed down, nothing specified. And that's kind of how the East is. I've had a few Eastern Orthodox adherents strip tell me that uh, in terms of justification, they don't particularly care about the weeds that the West has gone through. But yeah, they're kind of in the middle of ground. Uh, in, in some sense, they, they say justification is by faith, but also works that flow from that faith. And so... Anyway, we're going to discuss justification in terms of the Reformation, in the context of Reformation Month, and in terms of what justification is. So yeah, since the Reformation, justification kind of became the crux of the matter. Uh, it certainly is important now. Um, and it's been called the article by which the church stands or falls. In fact, there's a book by that title. It's a whopper on justification. It goes through historical context, biblical theology, systematic theology, pastoral theology, all about justification. Highly recommend it. Um, in fact, I utilized some of it for this episode here. Um, beginning with, you know, some some background here. Paul's use of justification. We're going to talk about Paul's use of justification, uh, which is logically grounded in the Old Testament. We can't just unhitch, right? We, we have to understand things in the context of the Old Testament first. Um, and you see this notion of righteousness. And in the Old Testament, we find the word being used as a verb primarily, Um where justification results from an action of God, where the individual is set in right relationship with God, right? He is vindicated or he is declared righteous. We see this in uh, Deuteronomy 25.1. The judges justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. It isn't that uh, they are making people righteous by justifying the righteous, but they are declaring what they are. Um, and we'll get into more about that and how that's um, crucial for Romans here in a little bit. Uh, so this is being echoed by Paul, and it really isn't surprising in that Paul follows this emphasis on the verb 
in terms of more than the noun. Uh, and justification appears in the New Testament as relating to the beginning of the Christian life and the end, uh, which is which is consistent whenever you think about the different concepts of salvation as a whole or sanctification, right? Growing in Christ-likeness, being made holy, um, is expressed as something that happened, something that is happening, and something that will happen, right? We were set apart when we were saved. We are being made Christ-like. Uh, we are being made holy now, and we will be glorified, right? There is a past, present, and future tense to these things, and, and even in salvation, you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved, and that's really the language that you see throughout the New Testament. Um, it's been a kind of a weird major contention between King James-only advocates, because the King James doesn't always retain the Greek tense there. Um, anyway, so with the subject of justification, uh, it's worth noting that there is a larger discussion specifically in what's called the new perspective on Paul, but we're, we don't have time to discuss that, and so we're just going to uh, kind of go by it. Um, in Paul's writings, we find a connection between justification and righteousness, right? Um, they do have the same root. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, and the interpretation of, quote-unquote, the righteousness of God became uh, heavily debated, and it became very important, especially during the Reformation. Uh, and the discussion still does occur today. And so it, it functions around what is called the genitive case in Greek, uh, or the use of the genitive case. And there's things called the objective genitive, the subjective genitive, um, the genitive of authorship, uh, or the genitive of origin. And so there's different understandings of what that phrase means based off of what the genitive is doing or how it's being used. So, for example, four major views based off of what I just said, the objective genitive would mean a righteousness that is valid before God. A subjective genitive would be an attribute or quality of God. A genitive of authorship would be a righteousness that goes forth from God. And a genitive of origin means man's righteous stats, uh, which is the result of God's action of justifying. Um, it's worth noting that among these different particular views, there's a consensus that it's, it's not a moral concept, but instead a statement regarding the relevance of God to our human plight, right? And we'll talk a little bit about that phrase here in a little bit when we get into Romans, but there's some opening remarks on it. Ultimately, you find that works flow from justification. And Paul uses this phrase in 1 Thessalonians 1.3 that's very important, the work of faith, or works which come from faith. Works are the natural outcome or results or expression of a justifying faith. So, what is justification? Justification is a legal declaration by God. And we'll cover the range here in a bit, but that's the basics. It's a it's a legal declaration by God as being righteous. It is used um, as a verb, as we mentioned. Uh, Luke 7.29, interesting text. Uh, quote, when they heard this all, the people and the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So if we look at that, they justified God. Well, did they did they make God righteous? No, of course not. They declared God as being righteous. So just to get a glimpse of this before we go into Romans more, uh, Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just think about that for a second. Him who declares one righteous, he who declares righteous the ungodly. So there's nothing in the ungodly that's righteous to be declared righteous, but he declares righteous the ungodly, by faith, and it's reckoned to him, it's counted to him 
as righteousness by his faith, right? So there was nothing in the man. He was ungodly, and he was declared righteous. He was justified, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, Galatians also speaks to this, too. He says, um, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And that's uh, Galatians 2.16. So there's a legal declaration. And so they're declared righteous. And what that means is that there has to be a contrast. What's the contrast? is condemnation. So this theme of justification, being declared righteous, being made right with God, is seen throughout Romans. And we can see this culmination whenever we get to the great uh, passage of assurance of Romans 8, in, in general, really, but Romans 8, 33 through 34. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? How can you condemn that who has been justified? God justifies. Who can condemn God's elect? And of course, this follows the great chain of redemption, right? Where we read of God's actions, and that it is God who foreknows, he predestines, he calls, he justifies, he glorifies. So what we find is this declaration of being not guilty, and it removes what's logical, the condemnation that comes with being guilty. It is a declaration to be righteous. And what we find is this tension in Romans, where Paul makes it absolutely clear that sinners are not declared righteous because they are righteous, but instead they are declared righteous because of the grace of God. They aren't even said to be declared righteous and made righteous internally, but instead they are declared righteous legally on the basis of their faith, not by any righteousness of their own. In fact, as we read through Romans here in a little bit, we'll see the complete opposite, right? Um, that it was no one was righteous and that God declared righteous the ungodly. So this ultimately means that growing in righteousness, uh, which leads to a justification at the end of our life, simply will not be viable here. And if you know what I'm talking about, we're talking about what was discussed in, in the episode on Trent a little bit, and we'll go into that um, more later. So let's look into Romans. We all know Romans is a theologically rich epistle to those who are in Rome, uh, and the nature of the epistle is soteriological, and there is a theme. Uh, there are several themes. You can't boil it all down to one theme. Uh, you can say the theme is the gospel, which is certainly true, but there's there's also um, other themes, you know, sub-themes, uh, which certainly would be justification, how we are made right with God. So the first eight chapters are an exposition on the gospel. How can we be made right with God, especially after chapters one through three, uh, with the unrighteousness of man? How can man be made right with God, to put it another way? So within the text of Romans, we find a particular word group, as we mentioned before. They all come from the same root, and these are the words that come out of it. Righteousness, righteous, unrighteousness, requirement, righteous deed, righteous verdict, declare righteous, unrighteous, just righteous, accountable, justification, take revenge, vengeance, and avenger. So all in all, this word group occurs 67 times, and most of those are actually contained in chapters 321 through 435. It's the cluster where you see this great discussion on justification by faith. So... That analysis work was actually done by Andrew uh, David Nasili. I think that's how you say it. And his work, um, Righteous God, Righteously Righteous, the Unrighteous, and um, the Doctrine on Which the Church Stands or Falls. It's that book I referenced. Um, I did the fun thing, and I double-checked uh, using the Wonders of Bible software. And as far as I could tell, I mean, he was spot on. Um, anyway, so when we speak about justification, it's worth looking to all of these instances for a number of reasons. But due to time, we'll have to just look at 
um, one instance, which is justification, to declare righteous. If we look at the Cadillac of lexicons, uh, known as BDAG, we find four primary definitions on the term. One, to take up a legal cause, to show justice, to do justice, to take up a cause. Um, this usage is found in the Old Testament, such as Psalm 81.3, uh, but not really noted in the New Testament. The second definition is, quote, to render a favorable verdict or vindicate. Uh, and it has this notion to treat as just to be found in the right free of charges. And then we get to the third use, which is to cause someone to be released from personal or institutional claims that no longer considered uh, pertinent or valid uh, or to make free and pure. Um, last, to demonstrate to be morally right, prove to be right. So within Romans, we actually see this occurring 15 times. We see it in uh, 2.13. Uh, 34, 320, 324, the establishment of the righteousness of God. There's that phrase again. Um, so this could be the righteousness that God is as an attribute, right? It could be what God does, his activity, or what God gives. Um, but basically, we find that uh, it doesn't have to be an either-or, but an and-all circumstance as we survey the entire context of Romans. Uh, within Romans, we see the establishment of God's righteousness as men are called unrighteous in comparison to God, and that's in the first couple chapters, right? And then we see the activity of saving, and we see the gift of righteousness. So in Romans chapter 2, uh, we see the concept of the law, and that the Jews and Gentile will be judged in according to what has been given to them. The Jews would be judged by the Torah, and the Gentiles would be that which would be um, naturally found, or I believe that Paul used the word conscience here. So chapter 3 establishes the utter unrighteousness of all human beings without exception. They are sinful, and Paul doesn't pull any punches. None is righteous. No, not one. No one does good. Not even one. He uses this, this emphatic no, just no, in, in 3.10 and 3.12. There is no room for exceptions, and we find that no man will be, quote, justified by works of the law. So worth noting is that there's an issue um, that's brought up by Romans 2, 6 through 7, which says it is the doers of the law who will be justified. Well, what do we do with that? Well, contextually in Romans, we see uh, the condition for eternal life. Follow the law, persevere in good works. But then as Paul moves on through the flow of the text, he emphasizes that no one without exception can do this. It's impossible. You can't. And so he says that no one will be justified by the works of the law because you can't do it. There's not an inconsistency there. As you look through the flow of the text, Paul says, this is what must be done. But guess what? You can't do it without exception. No man, none is righteous. So following this absolute declaration that no one without exception can do this, we reach a point in the text where many have stressed the importance of the passage, and that's 321-26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. 
it is to show his righteousness at this present time, so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So right out the gate, what we find in this text is the righteousness of God has been displayed to the entirety of mankind without distinction. This righteousness is only available through Jesus, specifically through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And there's actually a parallel here in Greek that you can't really pick up in English uh, because we have two different words here. We have faith and believe. But if we kept the parallelism at the expense of our, um, you know, at our ears, it would say through faith in Jesus Christ for those who are faithing. Through belief in Jesus Christ for all who are believing, right? Um, through trust in Jesus Christ for all those who are trusting. So there's two words that are parallel there. You have pisteos, which is faith, for all those who are pisteuantas, um, those who are faithing or trusting. So Paul notes that there is no distinction. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God, right? And likewise, all who are justified um, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There is the righteousness of God. It's freely given. It's not earned or paid for, but it's freely given as a grace by his undeserved kindness or generosity. Another way to understand grace, right? Not because of any merit or righteousness on our own, which is established prior, because we know that none is righteous. Paul made that very clear. But what we find is that the righteousness of God, the righteous God presents Jesus as a propitiation. And the righteousness of God is what God gives freely out of his generosity to an unrighteous people. Now, Jesus' death propitiates the Father. Well, what does that mean? Well, Jesus turns God's wrath against us into favor. And this is access through faith, quote, to be received by faith, end quote. It shows that God's righteousness so that he, God, might be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, right? How is he just? Well, he's just because there's a propitiation, and he's also the one who declares us righteous on the basis of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul, in anticipation to arguments, it doesn't end here. In anticipation to arguments, he looks to boasting, right? So let's read through that section, uh, starting in verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By works of law? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. So what we find um, is that no one can boast because it is God who justifies them by their faith. Uh, and that's, again, 327 through 28. It's not by works. Works earn their due. That's what we read. We read that if you work, you're just getting what you were deserved of, what you uh, had worked for. If I go to my job and I get paid, I got paid because I did what I was supposed to do. I got my earn, my keepsake. If I get a promotion, it's because I did my works. I have rooms to boast. Paul makes it clear that there is no boasting because God justifies them by their faith, not by their works. Works earn the due, but faith receives. The people fulfill law by faith, not nullify it. So we need to make sure we understand that too, that we fulfill the law by our faith. And we see this expanded in chapter uh, 8, 4, where we fulfill the law being in Christ. Um, so here we move into chapter 4. We find Abraham, the example of the faith. 
one who cannot boast because he was justified by his faith alone. Justified could boast if God justified him by his works. He could say, well, I did X, Y, and Z, um, therefore I'm declared righteous. But we find very clearly this example that Paul lays out, that it was not something that Abraham earned. Instead, we are told that it was Abraham's faith that was reckoned to him or counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't that he was righteous, but that he had faith and God justifies the ungodly by faith. Righteousness is counted to Abraham, imputed to Abraham by means of faith. And here we find the righteousness of God specifically found um, you know, in Christ within our particular context. And you can get into the Old Testament and how, um, how there's a period of uh, passing over former sins uh, so that the Old Testament saints can be saved by Christ. Um, but we're not going there right now. We're just talking about within this particular context. Um, we see the imputation and the crediting of Christ's righteousness to the sinner's account because of faith. Jesus took our trespasses, he was a propitiation, and he removed them. And when he was raised, he justified, 425. And that's where we get into Romans 5, where he gets more into the... Uh, the imputation of Jesus's righteousness. Um, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one uh, would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And then the next section goes into death and Adam and life in Christ. But we'll get there in a second. So Romans 5. Therefore, because of all that came prior, because of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, therefore, because of all of this, And since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have access by faith into grace. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in our sufferings and we rejoice in God. It is by faith alone that we are justified. And this faith that justifies is never left alone. We see fruit coming from justification, um, just not for justification, right? So if we look at this, um, and we, we really look at this, we have to recognize that um, it is the ungodly who, are die- who Christ died for. He shows his love and that while we're still sinner, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we talk about propitiation. We talk about imputation here in a little bit. So what you see here is that why are we justified? By his blood, faith in Jesus and his work. So are we justified by uh, Jesus plus us? No. We are justified by his blood, and we have confidence that we will be saved because of that. Since we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved. We have confidence that we can be saved because we have been justified by the perfect work of Christ. To say otherwise would be to diminish the work of Christ. So let's move on to chapter 5. Let's go to verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. That is Adam's sin, right? Contextually. 
For the judgment following one's trespasses brought condemnation. Adam brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Jesus brought justification. Adam brought condemnation. Um, For if by one's man's trespass death reigned through one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life of the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness led to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience that many were made sinners, so by man's obedience will many be made righteous. How are we made righteous? By Christ's righteousness, not our own. It's not our own righteousness. This is contra Rome. Rome says that it's our own righteousness, we, we grow in our righteousness, we build up our righteousness, and then we're declared righteous in the final days. This clearly says that it's the perfect work of Jesus that gives us righteousness. It is Jesus. It is through his obedience that we will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass where sin increased and grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace may, uh, right, might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How does righteousness... How is righteousness obtained? Through Jesus Christ our Lord, um, leading to eternal life. Uh, what we find essentially is that whenever we're looking at this text, that justification is so bound up in the work of Christ that to say that it's incomplete is to diminish the work of Christ. And what you find is that ultimately it's the conflation of definitions. It's it's how they define the term that causes the problem. So let's let's kind of recap. So justification is the legal declaration of God, which involves two aspects. The remission of the penalty for sin, the past, present, and future. Uh, and that's where we're declared forgiven, right? Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, according to Paul, who quotes David. And the second aspect is the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. So at the first, we see that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? 8.1. We've already talked about the contrast between righteousness and being... Uh, condemned, right? There's obviously that 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 contrast that we need to note. Um, the forgiveness of sins. It's emphasized by Paul's quotation of David's blessings, but we, we see that Christ became a propitiation for us. How are we forgiven? He satisfied the wrath of God by the imputation of our sin to Christ on the cross. It's called double imputation. We uh, Christ takes on our sin, and he gives us our righteousness, right? The great exchange is also what it's called. So the second aspect here is the imputation of Christ's righteousness. It's not foreign to the text. We actually see this happening with Abraham. He he reckons righteousness to Abraham, and he clothes Isaiah in righteousness, though Isaiah didn't earn it himself in Isaiah 61.10. We're told by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous, Romans 5.19. And he counts Christ's righteousness as our own. He reckons it to our account. He says, to the one who does not work but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. So also David pronounces blessings upon the man whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Um, so Paul also states in Philippians 3, 8 through 9, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of many things, and I count them all rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So what we find is there's no righteousness of Paul's own, but it's a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. It's righteousness from God that depends upon his faith. So what about James? The big James debate, right? 
Well, James is emphatic on the reality of faith that is not bare minimum acknowledgement of facts. It's not mental assent, but he tr- his emphasis is on trust and fidelity, right? Uh, we read uh, in James that uh, he's discussing a faith that is genuine, a genuine faith, and he expresses that that faith is one that moves. It comes from the implanted word in 121, uh, which is the word of God, you know, 118. So doubt is actually painted as a lack of commitment. And the person who who doubts is pictured as one who's double-minded. And so as we move through and we get to James 2, 14 through 17, we see that that faith that has no works is actually a dead faith. It's not a genuine faith. It's not a living faith. And he counters one who may claim to have faith, yet doesn't actually possess faith. He says, if anyone says he has faith, but does not have works, right? James poses the rhetorical question, can that faith save him in 2.4? So what is James saying? Well, the one who says he has faith, but doesn't have works shows that his faith isn't genuine. It's empty. It's lip service. So he then uses a case study regarding uh, care for those in need. He points out saying that uh, if you see someone who's in need and you say, go in peace without actually helping them, it's meaningless. In the same way, faith that has no work, has no fruit, is meaningless and empty. It is lip service. It is worthless. It is dead. That faith shows itself to be dead. Or if we want to use a different term, inauthentic, ingenuine. James goes on to challenge, uh, you know, even the doctrine is sound, saying, you know, you can have correct theology, but it doesn't equate a genuine living faith. But instead, uh, he moves on to verse 21 through 26, where we read, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith were made complete by what he did. The question is, well, what does James even mean by justified here? Um, is this discussing how we become right with God? Is this how how we are declared not guilty before God or forgiven of sins? No, that's not in the text. James is discussing what genuine faith looks like and what pretense looks like. This isn't a declaration of justification in terms of how we maintain or obtain a relationship with God. But it's a demonstration, a manifestation of a genuine faith, a real faith, not just lip service. Abraham's faith was demonstrated by his work, which is the clear reading of the text over and against importing a foreign concept on James. So what we ultimately find is that James is asking how we know Abraham was righteous. How do we know? How do how do we verify this? Because he's talking about, you know, the one who says that they have faith but has nothing with it. Well, that's nothing. So how do we know that Abraham had genuine faith? Well, the answer is quite simple, from his deeds. Of course, um, James contextually, his focus is not on a uh, theological discussion on justification in terms of getting right with God, but he's focusing on ethics, right? Um, And so that's a very simple thing to realize. And it's very logical whenever you think about something simple. If I say I'm a vegetarian and I start eating meat, did my saying that I was a vegetarian have any substance to it? No. I just said I was a vegetarian. It doesn't mean I was a vegetarian. If we actually have faith, we will act upon it. It's logical. There's nothing wrong with it. And so James is countering the idea that a empty faith is a worthless faith and it's not genuine faith. So he's countering, uh, and we have to recognize that whenever it came to Trent and they they laid out um, refutations of Reformed theology, one of their charges was that we believed in an empty mental ascent, Right? It's not true. The Reformed camp has never said that. We're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Justification elicits works. Faith elicits works. But we're not justified by those works. They're a natural flow from the works. Um, so as we discussed in episode 145, the Roman Catholic understanding of justification 
differ significantly from everything that we have said so far. Um, while some, you know, while some in post-Vatican II um, Catholics have tried to move justification to the more Protestant view, which uh, we did discuss, I believe, we, we still find the majority moving towards that which was still declared a trend, right? Because it was an ecumenical council, you can't contradict it. Uh, and so justification is seen as sanctifying and the renewing of the inner man. Justification is essentially conflated with sanctification and regeneration, and they're all wrapped up in this one term. So for Rome, justification begins with the instrument of baptism, and it uh, and it does move in faith. You know, if you're an adult and you don't have faith, your your baptism is meaningless. So it has to be met with faith in order to justify. But baptism is the first means by which justification is obtained, while faith receives justification uh, with a con- uh, you know a continuation in retaining justification in the Christian life. Um, and that's the work of the Christian life to maintain your justification essentially because of the conflation. Rome's justification is not imputed righteousness. It's an infused righteousness, meaning that God puts into us a righteousness and we are told to cooperate with it, essentially making it our own and uh, growing in it. Um, so the state of grace, that is, you know, being in a state of God's acceptance and favor is ultimately fleeting in this view. Uh, Trent pointed out that people cannot be certain that they are in a state of grace. Quote, if one considers his own weakness and his defective disposition, he may well be fearful and anxious as to the state of grace, as nobody knows the certainty of faith, uh, which permits of nowhere that he has achieved the grace of God. Likewise, there are various degrees of justification. Uh, Each person receives different degrees, and it can be increased by good works. Eternal life is not based, then, on God's grace alone, but on our cooperation with God's grace and our merit and cooperation with our faith. So what you'll find is the conflation of, again, sanctification, justification, and regeneration, and it's all labeled as justification. Uh, Catholic apologists have often—there's uh, one video I watched a long time ago. It was like three hours long, so— it was hard to watch all the way through, but basically it was trying to speak about the silliness of regeneration and justification. They're like, well, you know, they're basically the same. Why are you separating them? It's kind of silly. I mean, don't they do the same thing? But there, there's a, there's a quick slight there that you, that you miss if you're not paying attention. But we find that regeneration is the new birth that is internal. It brings the dead man to life. That is a work of God internally. But it's not what declares us righteous. What declares us righteous is our faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ's work on the cross, which we have already expressed in Romans, right? Uh, Wayne Groom actually has a helpful analogy. Um, He says, Regeneration is an act of God in us. Justification is a judgment of God with respect to us. The distinction is like the distinction between the act of a surgeon and the act of a judge. The surgeon, when he removes the inward cancer, does something in us. That is not what the judge does. He gives us a verdict regarding our judicial status. I felt like I said that's kind of strange. If we are innocent, he declares accordingly. So very simply, if we look at all this, we find a, a fundamental interjection of importing definitions, changing definitions, not letting the text just speak of itself. It's the importing of tradition. It's the importing of philosophy, Aristotle specifically. Uh, it's even importing some of Augustine's teachings. You know, Augustine, um, he was an interesting fellow He's got things for both Protestants and Catholics. Um, that's that's the fact of the matter. But you see all this being imported into the text instead of letting the text speak for itself. The second thing is the interesting connection between baptism being the instrument by which uh, justification begins. You know, you have baptism and faith. But what is strange, right, is that 
the text specifically talks about Abraham before circumcision justifying him. And it makes a big emphasis on that. And so if Rome holds that baptism is basically equivalent to circumcision in terms of the New Testament and Old Testament, right? Uh, that's one of the arguments. Then what do we do with that? So what we read in, in Romans, where it says that Abraham had faith and it was reckoned to him as righteousness before he was circumcised, that those who were uncircumcised could also be declared righteous by faith. But Rome, they flip that. They say, well, to be, to, to be declared righteous, you have to be baptized with faith also. Faith plus baptism, right? How does that make any sense? If we, if we replace circumcision, if we replace baptism with circumcision in Abraham's text, it would say something like this. Before Abraham was baptized, he was credited as righteous by faith, so that those who were unbaptized would also be credited as righteous by faith. You don't see that. That's not consistently applied. He specifically says that that work was not what justified him. It was his faith. So why are we saying that all of a sudden baptism does it? Of course, that goes into how Augustine formulated baptism in terms of original sin and everything else. And that goes into a whole can of worms. But regardless, moving on. So we have the, the importing of definitions. We have baptism as a problem. We have justification in a pastoral sense. And in terms of what Paul says, okay, no one can be sure that you are in the state of grace in Roman Catholicism. Whenever I read Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The Roman Catholic cannot honestly look at that and say that they have peace with God. They just can't. Period. They can say, well, you know, I, I haven't done X, Y, and Z, but if I did, I would have peace with God. No, you don't ever know if you're in a state of grace. You can't be certain. I can be certain because I have faith. And you have to remember that Trent condemns that. You know, anyone who says that they... Um, are justified because they have faith and because they have that trust that they're justified, they're anathema. <laughs> okay. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, or if we want to rephrase it, therefore, because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's a reality. You know, someone would be like, well, you know, there's a textual variant there. Um, some manuscripts say, um, let us have um, peace with God because of the subjunctive mood versus the indicative mood where it's an Omicron versus an Omega. And I would even postulate that that doesn't change a, a lick in this particular text. Therefore, let's just read it with a subjunctive. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, let us have peace with God. Because we have been justified by faith, that stays the same. Justified by faith doesn't change. Let us have peace with God. Let us live in that reality, right? Especially whenever he goes into this long exhortation, um, you know, just a, just a few paragraphs later about how to live in light of everything. There's nothing wrong with the subjunctive there, I don't think. Um, but again, if we go to more texts where it's all on the basis of Christ's work, our justification is always about being declared righteous on the basis of Christ's work on our behalf. As soon as you say, well, I need to... I need to do X, Y, and Z to be justified. Then that means that Christ's work was not enough to justify you. Right? And then whenever we think about the concept of condemnation and justification, right? And, and, and how Paul uses works and says, we know works. The one, who, the one who does works just get his due. You just get your due if you do works. Right? 
but no one will be justified by works. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can a Roman Catholic actually proclaim that as true? If, you're not, if you don't know if you're staying in grace and you don't know if you're justified, what do you do? For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh cannot do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Again, Jesus' active and passive obedience. So what do we do? Um, I mean, very simply, whenever we look at texts like Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, um, you know, Roman Catholic apologists will often say, well, that text doesn't say faith alone. Well, if we read the text, what, what do we see? Let's, let's look at the text. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay? We are saved by grace, not works. Through faith, not works. It is not your own doing, works. It is a gift of God. Not because of works, lest any man should boast. Are works involved? Yeah, of course. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. They flow from the reality, right? Apologists will again say, it doesn't say faith alone, right? It doesn't say uh, we have been saved by grace through faith alone. That's true. It doesn't say that. But it does say not by works. And it does say it is not your own doing. And it does say, lest any man should boast. If you get up to the pearly gates and you have all your righteousness that you worked for, you have reason to boast. It is not your own doing. You are not saved by your merits. You are not saved by works. You are saved by grace through faith. And that's a gift of God and not by works, not by your own doing, lest any man should boast. Justification is the legal declaration by God upon the sinner where God declares the sinner righteous in his sight. It's based upon the work of Christ, not us. It means that the person is declared righteous by God based upon nothing more than our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has done all that was necessary to make us right before God the Father. We cannot add or subtract from the work of Christ. His work is sufficient, his work is powerful, and his work was perfect. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly, Galatians 2.21. So whenever a Roman Catholic will say that there's a curse of excommunication, according to Trent, you're outside of Christ, if you believe that you are saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus, fine. I don't want anything to do with that anyway. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. 
There's a lot more we could talk about on this particular topic. There's a lot more we could talk about Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism is very nuanced. It's very deep. It has years of history. Um, there's no way that I adequately touched on touched on it. But this was more of a positive, um, positive episode on justification. Um, and I would challenge you to, to take Rome's doctrine of justification, to take their definition of justification and read it into Romans and tell me how well that works. Therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace with God. Well, that's rough. Anyway, um, I want to thank you all again for being a part of Christ is the Cure as we reached our third birthday. Um, I will probably be going bi-weekly again because, like I said, we're packed. Um, if you want to support me, uh, feel free to pray and consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash Christ is the Cure. And additionally, um, don't forget to try out the demo of Biblingo, B-I-B-Lingo.org, the Rosetta Stone of Biblical Languages. Go check it out. Hope to have a video up on that soon, probably before, well, hopefully before this episode even drops. Um, so go check it out. Great, great program. And once you try your free trial and you decide to subscribe, use Christ is the Cure as your discount code and you'll get a discount. Um, and that'll be it. God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful day.